0: The Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the physicians' lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today, from the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Uh, Hello, George, and it's Tuesday again. Pleasure to see you one more time.
1: Yeah, twice in one day, three times in one day, counting the coaching classes. It's like a triple, triple Bravo. Today we have very great physician, Dr. Mary Ann Jackson, and her topic is going to be about infectious diseases, long gone, measles, and varicella, to be exact. And we do have some experience with that.
0: I first had the pleasure to meet Dr. Jackson at the Miami Postgraduate CME in 2020, right before COVID. And boy, was she full of insight, like an oracle. We had finally the pleasure to once again meet this past March in Miami again, again at the Children's CME. She's a phenomenal woman, a phenomenal pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, vaccinologist, dean, and educator. And now I also find out that she is a co-fellow of one of the people that I admire most on this earth, Dr. Carla Odio, and one of my dear mentors. I am so delighted to have her on the show to record the horrors of the classic pediatric illnesses that are no longer with us, thanks to the work she has done and the work of community pediatricians that vaccinate one child at a time. Welcome, Dr. Jackson. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thanks, Dr. Brabant. Thanks, Dr. Rugu for having me.
0: I'm going to start with asking you, Dr. Jackson, why did you become a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist?
2: My path to becoming a pediatric infectious disease specialist certainly started during my medical school years when, remember back when I trained, 80% of children with childhood cancer died. And as a medical student, what I uh, remembered is they died of infections or they died of complications of their cancer, meaning um, they died with bleeding, disgraces, and such. What I realized at that time is maybe I had a chance to impact on their survival by creating a path to treating some of the infections like aspergillosis that were uh, killing these children. So as I decided on a path from pediatrics at um, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, it's a very interesting fact that I think you'll you'll enjoy. So when I went to Cincinnati Children's there was no infectious disease faculty there. And in fact, Dr. George McCracken and Dr. John Nelson came about every three to six months to provide consultation. And as the intern who was interested in infectious diseases, I would prepare the cases to discuss with them. So along came uh, Dr. McCracken and Dr. Nelson on a regular basis, I shared our cases. I learned more knowledge. I got interested in the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of drugs that we use to treat infections, And I became an enthusiastic learner of communicable diseases in childhood that we could impact by vaccine. And so well, that was my path, the pediatric ID. It was born oh. McCracken and John Nelson.
0: Wow. And so you went on to work with Dr. McCracken and Dr. Nelson in Texas, how was it to work in such a huge children's hospital with such huge eminences in the world of the pediatrics?
2: So I went from Cincinnati Children's Hospital to the University of Texas Southwestern to be a fellow of George McCracken and John Nelson after residency in Cincinnati. And it was amazing. It was amazing uh, on one respect because Heinz Eichenwald was still there at that time. And so I can remember some of our initial infectious disease in, uh, morning reports where we talked about children with uh, what we then called aseptic meningitis, which really was a, a, a variation of a, a number of different enteroviruses. But it always Dr. Eichenwald would bring up polio and Dr. McCracken would say, we've cured polio. Now we're talking about enteroviruses as we spoke about those children. So it was energizing. It was amazing. They were remarkable mentors. And during the time that I was there as a fellow was when the infectious disease, the pediatric infectious disease journal was first launched. And so my instructors, my mentors in writing up research were George McCracken and John Nelson.
0: Wow. Well, well, they, they are phenomenal human beings. I'd ask Dr. McCracken, if we're supposed to give steroids before you give the antibiotics and meningitis, the Mococcal meningitis, for those of you who don't remember that horrible disease, he said, yes. I said, why don't we do it intertickly, just like we do for the cancer patients? And he giggled, this is in Washington Hotel, he giggled, he says, that's an excellent question, Herb. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'm going to get a fellowship with them or something. He goes, I did that. I think he used a rabbit model for meningitis.
2: Yeah, he had a rabbit model for meningitis.
0: I did that in the rabbit model. And every rabbit that I injected with steroids directly into their CNS died soon thereafter. <laughs> oh, not a good so idea. It's a great idea, but I suggest you never bring it up again. <laughs> but he was so gracious. He was giggling and laughing. It was just like, I thought of that idea too It's a great idea, but it doesn't work. So anyhow, George. You had the, the pleasure of encountering measles when measles is not a disease that we see anymore. You were a resident in New York City?
1: Was there a resident in Jersey City Medical Center?
0: Uh, what uh, year was
1: that? Oh, boy, 1993. 1993. If you look up and do a Google search, there was an epidemic, a mini epidemic in, in Jersey City. In New Jersey, it started at Rutgers University, I believe. We were admitting these children with, I remember that we used to call it hyperpyrexia and rash. Hmm. That was your diagnosis. So a lot of fever with the rash. Kids were miserable, dehydrated, just irritable, more than just a fever, right? So they'd get admitted, give them supportive care, IV fluids. I don't remember what else. Did we do anything else? Did we give them just the coverage? I don't remember. Anyway, so they'd be admitted. And then I'd work in emergency rooms. Some of the kids were really sick. Some of them were not so sick. They'd get discharged. And then one day, as an intern, I was having a fever, of course. And I go to work. And then I just, like, passed out. And then I had this, the classic, it looks like paint dropped onto your head. From head to toe, rash, conjunctivitis, cervical nodes, coughing, fevers, 105. You know, I'm in the adult, they take me to the adult side of uh, the ER, and they're looking at me like I have some Ebola virus or something weird. Nobody knew what it was, right? So it's sitting there, sitting there for hours, IV fluids, and nobody knew what I had. Then they're talking, then maybe we'll do a spinal tap, we'll start antibiotics. And then we had some of the residents that were around, uh, and they heard George. I was... Uh, George.
0: Did, did, did you have photophobia? No. You, no? No. Did you... And did you did you have diarrhea? Do you remember? No. No? Okay. And so then no one knew, and then your pediatric residents came to they visit. They came to visit to see
1: what's going on, and they said, oh, you look like all those kids were admitting on the floor. And then they told the, the adult medicine, and they did titers, and, of course, it was measles. Now, why did I have measles? Interesting. I got my measles vaccine, but I was of the generation that, that could have had one, but should have had two. And then when they do, you know, how you do for nursing school, medical school, you have to get the vaccine titers. Of course, I had vaccine titers done on July 1st. And it was the 4th of July weekend when the results came in. And somehow, you know, the folder got closed. Nobody noticed that I had no titers to measles. And, you know, sent me out into the to the world to cure measles. <laughs> I got sick.
0: and. How long were you out of work?
1: I was out for two weeks. I was admitted for about a week, and you know, I, I do remember being in the hospital. You know, they're giving you IV fluids, and you're just thrown in the bed somewhere. But like, even like with COVID, it creates this this thick membrane inside your airways, and I think that's what creates the respiratory distress because you can go and just like pull it out of your mouth, out of your throat, just thick exudates.
0: Well, you're better, of course. Was I? Were you miserable?
1: I was very miserable,
0: very, miserable. very so miserable. it's
1: not just a cold. And then to add insult to injury, what happened is I went. Hmm. I think I was vomiting, right? And I was vomiting a lot. of vomiting a lot in adult medicine. What do they use for vomiting? Composi. And I'm what fine. do you think happened with that? The idiosyncratic reaction of the where you're mad as a hatter and you're all hyperactive and you can't see and. You know, I remember my brother was a teenager and, and I, I was still fresh off the, you know, USMLE board. So I knew these things and I had to, can you look up, what does Compazine do? He looked it up in the book and the kid is 15 and he's reading it. And he says, oh, that sounds just like you.
0: Wow. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying this episode. As you know, George and I are passionate about independent community pediatrics. We honestly believe this is the best care for children across the U.S chances are high your vaccine program is not as effective as you think. After factoring in time, waste, fees and the many other costs many practices barely break even. That's where Canad comes in. They do everything from buying their vaccines to managing all the paperwork to making sure you get paid fairly for both private and VFC vaccines. You simply scan the vaccine and you're done. We partner with them to offer you a free lunch where they'll help you understand the financials of your vaccine program in more depth. Just go to canid.io backslash lounge to learn more. That's canid.io backslash lounge or look for the link on the show notes.
2: Dr. Bravo, you know, one thing that's interesting about this, the story that you alluded to, and I'll just comment on with, with another personal experience. So I'm the oldest of five children. I was born in 1953. I did have measles as did my first four siblings. One of the most common and unique features of measles was photophobia. And I can distinctly remember being in my living room and my mom making sure that all the blinds were closed, and of course, you know, I was the index case and s- spread it to to all of my siblings. Right, uh, it, it's it's important to think about in terms of measles because, uh, you know, there are five reasons why we are going to continue to see measles across the world and including within the United States. It's really difficult to recognize in the prodromal stage because the prodromal stage is all fever and non-specific fever doesn't clue you into the diagnosis. The way measles looks typically is ratcheting fever for the first four years. And then by the time the rash has onset, the fever actually has disappeared. And so that makes it a very difficult diagnosis unless you're a savvy clinician and you recognize the rash which starts at the head and works down from the body, and then the association of cough, choriza, and conjunctivitis. The second piece of why we'll continue to see measles is that the herd immunity threshold is at least 94%. That's required to prevent transmission, and we're always going to see, I think, pockets of unimmunized or underimmunized individuals. So then the third reason is by the time you do diagnose measles, it's already spread to the susceptibles. And of the susceptible, 90% will develop disease. And it's just, you know, if you think about the, the fact that it's globally still very prominent, it's just a plane right away. And within the United States, the fifth important reason is that we have many states that allow personal vaccine exemptions. And there are hot spots for vaccine-preventable diseases like measles around the country. It's just very, very fascinating to consider the fact that we'll still see this disease.
0: Yeah. Um, I remember uh, in, in Costa Rica, in the pediatric ID ward, they were always so concerned about dehydration for these kids. And that's not on the textbooks, but they did get severe diarrhea. And if the measles that's didn't kill them, correct. the diarrhea killed them. And that's much worse in the underdeveloped world where you don't have rapid access to pediatric hospitals, IV fluids, so on. But diarrhea was a real killer of kids with measles. And before measles vaccine, a couple of million kids or more died every year across the world from this disease.
2: You know, I'll just add to that. Measles infection Increases mortality for all infections. The virus destroys our immune memory cells. Measles virus destroys immune memory cells. And that immune amnesia lasts for two to three years. So all cause infectious disease related um, infections and mortality goes up. Wow. And that's irrespective of the um, last feared feature of uh, measles, SSPE.
0: So what was SS?
2: S- so SSPE is a neuro-progressive entity that is inevitably fatal that occurs five to ten years after recovery from infection. So imagine you're an individual who survived this infection which most children did, not all, but most children did. And for those particularly under one to two years of age, five to 10 years later, because of a persistent presence of this virus in the central nervous system, you present with this progressive neurologic disease that starts with cognitive decline. It progresses to seizures. It progresses to muscle spasms, eventually to coma and inevitably to death within months to just a year or so. It is a devastating entity that we continue to see now uniformly fatal.
0: So it's 100% fatal. You get symptoms five, 10 years after your measles infection. In six months, you're gone, and there's nothing that we can do for you.
2: Absolutely correct. And this is a vaccine-preventable infection.
0: What a horrible moral injury to a parent that chooses not to vaccinate and look at their kid this way. Yep. Well, how horrible.
1: Yeah, I remember those kids, when they were admitted, they had fever. But you know what? They had a fever of 106, 105, consistently 105, 106. It was like crazy fevers. And nothing would bring it down.
2: And these are kids with this measles infection. So when they initially present this, highly febrile phase of the illness might be the only thing that you see, and you can't see the rash, cough, carizan, conjunctivitis until that kind of two to four day mark. And then one more point, remember what we used to always look for to diagnose measles?
0: Complex spots. spots.
2: Bingo. But guess what? In current kids, we don't see them quite as often. And oftentimes by the time the rash comes, the Koplex have disappeared. And so we look and look for them, or although we try to look for them because you know how miserable children are with measles. And so to get into the mouth to try and look for these spots opposite the molars, it's really hard to do. But many times by the time you really are kind of starting to understand what this febrile exanthem is, the Koplex spots are gone.
0: And so this sounds also very much like Kawasaki syndrome,
2: Dang. you know,
0: eye fevers conjunctivitis. Yes. Yes. And we had a pearl at the meeting of what to look for in the conjunctivitis that yes. tells whether it's Kawasaki's or not, what do so, I look
2: for? That's a great, great point. So within the differential disease of uh, Kawasaki disease, uh, it, it always is measles and Your clue there is vaccinated or not vaccinated for the most part. But as you're thinking about Kawasaki disease, you know, we're looking for, we're looking for rash, we're looking for extremities, we're looking for oral findings, we're looking for uh, lymph nodes, we're looking for the eye finding. So the limbic spary of the conjunctivitis is what you're looking for to differentiate Kawasaki disease from measles. So the limbus is avascular, which means that the conjunctival injection for Kawasaki disease because it is a vasculitis extends up to the limbus and then stops. And so again, this is a an entity where children are very very irritable and if you can have them at least looking sideways for you where you can look for the limbus, if it is limbic spearing, think KD if it's not, you know, you can, you're going to inquire about uh, their vaccine status for sure. And then there's a long list of entities that are in that measles diagnosis differential.
0: That that was a great pearl at the conference. Thank you so much for that. The, the The wonderful part that people forget is over the past 75 years, our forefathers have made such advances in what pediatric health care in health is. And people have no idea of the sacrifices these men and the women did and the sacrifices that the children made to make this day possible. So the first vaccine for measles was the Edmundston vaccine, terribly toxic vaccine. It gave you fevers higher than the disease itself. You wouldn't, you wouldn't die from measles later on. It was so bad that, and that's why I had this, this book here, So this book is written by Saul Krugman and by Dr. Sam Katz. So they want to study the measles vaccine and they were giving kids immunoglobulin before they gave that measles vaccine to minimize the side effects of the vaccine. And they found that unacceptable. And with a third year of immunizations, Maurice Hillerman, they developed a new strain and that's the Merck vaccine, the one we use now in the MMR and universally that's the one that's used or the MMR. However, there's some interesting steps in the way. So before that, there was a third vaccine that was so horrible that was taken off the market in two, two weeks. And there was a second vaccine that maybe George had that second vaccine that was approved early on in the 60s that it was immunodeficient.
1: That's probably it.
0: So it was well known that if you're vaccinated with not the Merck vaccine, but the other vaccine, you are at risk of having infectious measles later on in life. And that's probably what happened to you.
1: I wonder why did they have that statement for school? If you were born before 1957, you didn't have to get the measles vaccine.
0: Perhaps everybody had had it by then. Maybe. Yeah. But that was a very interesting that those were the three vaccines that came out.
2: I guess it emphasizes the fact that as we introduced vaccines to the market, we looked at them very carefully. And those that did not produce immunogenicity or were not safe were, were removed far, fairly quickly. You know, the first killed and... The first killed measles vaccine, and then the Edmondson strain vaccine, it did not last very long. Before we ha- we got a very effective product, both immunogenic and safe, that effectively prevent measles
0: and long lasting, right? I mean, and
2: long lasting, exactly correct.
0: You, you get vaccinated, you, you're pretty much guaranteed you're never going to have measles, right? I mean, they're they're miracles in the modern world. It's you know, we talk about all these tech innovations, but these innovations had a far-reaching effect in humankind. It's just amazing. You, I, I want to cry when I read these textbooks. <laughs> I do. It's just, you know, the things these people did, they vaccinated their own children. They went to prep schools, you know, and, and they did so much for humanity. And we don't tell their story of how great they were to do all of this. We're going to take a short break here and come back with episode two with Dr. Jackson, the history of varicella. The Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and
2: everything in between.